I'm Jim Irvin, and this is Here's One I Made Earlier, a regular conversation with songwriters about a key song in their repertoire. Today's guest is James Warren, former member of strange 70s prog band Stackridge and late 70s, early 80s new wave duo The Corgis, which he formed with his former Stackridge colleague Andy Davis. It was James who was the sole author and composer of a song on The Corgis' second album, Dumbwaiters, which was first a global hit in the summer of 1980 and has been re-released and appeared regularly ever since in various guises, covered numerous times by everyone from the King Singers to Blixer Bargeld from Erasure to Richard Thompson, who called it the only decent song of the 1980s. Um, it's been used in many movies and TV shows, was a huge hit as a UK jungle track for Baby D in the 1990s and has been sampled and repurposed by all kinds of dance bands ever since. And it turned up most recently during the One World concert organised by Lady Gaga for the Covid crisis, being sung by Italian superstar Zucchero. To me, it's simply one of the most perfect songs ever written. It is Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime. Change your heart Look around you Change your heart will astound you I need your loving like the sunshine and everybody's gotta learn sometime everybody's gotta learn sometime Everybody's got to learn sometime. Welcome, James. Hi there. It's the 40th anniversary of its release this year. How, how are you marking it? It's amazing, isn't it? I, I, first of all, I can hardly believe that 40 years have elapsed. It's, it's very weird. And, well, recently I got together with someone I met by chance in Bath, a chap called Matt Owens, who used to be in a band called Noah and the Whale. We got together and had a little sort of session in my, in my house. And at one point, Matt said, well, go on, play me your, your big hit then, James. And uh, I just played it on guitar, just strumming a few chords and then singing. And, and that was all there was to it. But Matt said, well, does a version like that exist anywhere? And I said, no, we've, we've never recorded it like that. So to cut a long story short, Matt produced the track and we, we made a new version, which uh, you, you can... If you go onto YouTube and uh, type in James Warren, um, my channel will come up and, and you'll see that that new version, Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime 2020. And I, I, I'm very pleased with the way it's turned out. We'll be talking in detail about the song later on, James, but first let's talk a bit about your life and career leading up to uh, where you wrote it. Mm. What, what was your route into a career in music? What made you want to do it in the first place? The Beatles, as simple as that. <laughs> I was... Uh, 
I suppose I, I was just starting first year of the, of the sixth form, and uh, I, I thought I was going to be a French teacher. That was that was my career path. I loved <laughs> I loved languages. Really? And yeah. And I hadn't had any sort of musical instruments in my life. But then the Beatles uh, appeared on the horizon and I was absolutely bowled over. I, I thought, you know, I, I just can't believe that songs could be this good and singing could be this good. Everything was just so exciting about it. So uh, I persuaded my my dad to buy some kind of cheap acoustic guitar. You know, that was what I wanted to do. So I'm afraid I quit school uh, at the end of the first year of the sixth form because I thought, well, I, I just want to be in a band. That's, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be a teacher. And you, so, you were living in Bristol, is that right? That's correct. What were the bands around Bristol at that time? Can you remember? Well, I soon discovered once I joined bands that there was there were a hell of a lot of bands around. And uh, my the first band that I seriously got involved in was a band called Dawn, and we used to do a mixture of covers of Californian bands, music, like the Birds especially, bands like that, which we absolutely loved, and plus some originals. So I was with Dawn for several years, and that was great fun, playing in the old granary, which was started or owned by Ackerbilk or something like that. And it was it was the most popular venue in Bristol, and we played there endlessly. It was fantastic fun. And also there was a, a club called the Dugout Club. So we were just one of, you know, 10 other bands that uh, regularly played there every, every week, and... Uh, so yeah. what, what years would that would that be? What? If Stackridge got going in about 1969, I suppose 67, 68. So how did Stackridge coalesce? What, uh, how did it come together? Uh, obviously, you tended to sort of get to know the other members of the other bands and, and you know, drank with them at the bar and so on. I, I was aware that there was this other band that was very sort of blues-based. It was called Grip Tight Thin. And... Uh, <laughs> And they were really good, you know, got matey with some of the leading, you know, players in that band. And then to my complete surprise, one day when we were drinking at the bar, they said, James, you know, we're thinking of starting something new. I don't know if you'd be interested, but we need someone to play bass. Would you, would you be up for that? And I suppose I thought, well, this might be a new challenge. Let's, let's see what, how it might, you know, what might develop. Staggers were the first band to play Glastonbury, is that right? That's right, yes. But of course, it wasn't called the Glastonbury Festival then. This was, we're talking 1970, I believe. The festival was called something like the Shepton Mallet Rhythm and Blues Festival or some such name. Yeah. And it really was a tiny affair, like literally a couple of hundred people and a few dogs in a, in a muddy field. And no one had any idea that this festival had any future on, on the world stage, if, if you're pardon the pun, you know, it was just like another tiny local festival. So it didn't really mean anything to us, to be honest. Uh, but we, we did it because we were one of the local bands. And yeah, I, I, I believe I, I've got a shocking memory, I, I must tell you. Oh, really? OK, that's handy. I, I remember virtually nothing except people <laughs> tell me that we were the first band on at this first Glastonbury Festival. And also, I think we, we closed the festival as well. We came on at the very end as well. In what way, when Stackridge came together... Because it seems it always seemed to me to have that Beatles kind of variety, didn't it? Mm. You know, with multiple lead singers and and, mm. and different styles going on. Was that part of the plan? Did Stackridge have a plan for what it was supposed to be? Good question. 
I think we did in a sense because we had this background of people like Andy and Crun and Mutter, who played flute, all having this sort of more bluesy, rocky background. And so that was brought into it in a Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac sort of way. Uh, I, I think that that definitely left a, a sort of mark on, on how we fashioned songs. It was genuinely a case that there were several people in the band that had songwriting ideas and you just tended to sing the ideas that you'd invented yourself. Although I, I'm, I'm sure that in the back of our minds, perhaps unconsciously, the Beatles were that was such a huge blueprint on what we did, you know, and because they had several singers and several songwriters and so on, I, I guess in the back of our minds, we, we thought that was the way that you had to do things. How would you describe Stackridge for anyone who's never heard them? Yeah, I, I would find it so hard to say what Stackridge is like. I mean, I think in the past I've tended to say Stackridge is like a, a, a weird mixture of... Uh, the Beatles meet Frank Zappa, meet the Incredible String Band, meet the Kinks, you know, all rolled into one. And people, are, of course, just remain entirely mystified by that description. <laughs> but to me, that, that kind of summarised where we were at in the beginning, uh, at least. I think it, it's safe to say you, you've got an unusual voice, haven't you, for, for, for rock? How did you square that? What was your thinking about how to put yourself over in, in that milieu, if you like? <laughs> I didn't really know. I mean, I was very naive at that time. When I think back, I mean, I was only, what was it, 19 or 20 years old. And the way I heard myself in my head when I sang is quite different to, way actually, to the way it actually turned out on record and how other people heard me. In my head, it was the same as like, you know, John Lennon's falsetto, like when he does like, won't you please, please, which, which even though it was falsetto, it was kind of, it had a, you know, a strength. Yeah. Whereas I think my falsetto sounded very anemic on record and I'm very embarrassed when I, when I hear it now. It was quite unusual to do it for entire songs though. I know, it was ridiculous. On the third album, Man in the Bowler Hat, keen-eyed observers of the credits would have noticed the appearance of someone called Smeg Makovic, mm. who, mm. <laughs> who I gather was a composite of the, of the band. How did, who was he? So that was Crun, Mutter and myself as lyric writers. By this time, uh, the George Martin thing had, had come on the horizon, which perhaps we can talk about more in a minute. Yeah. And so we were writing songs for what was going to be this album that George was going to produce. But we were gigging all the time. So basically the only time we found to write words to these unfinished scraps of tunes that we, we had would be late at night after we'd come back from a gig. So Mutter, Crun and I would have our bowls of muesli and cups of tea and, and start writing words. And most of the time we were just sort of pissing ourselves, messing around with the most ridiculous suggestions. Crun especially had the most fantastic uh, sense of humour. He was really funny. There's a song on uh, Man in the Bowler Hat called Dangerous Bacon, isn't there? Mm. Uh, where you mention your um, love for the boys in the Beetle Boots term, you're on yeah. CF&G. But it yeah. also cheerfully mentions rape and the Holocaust, doesn't it? That, that was Crun's idea. <laughs> But you, you probably wouldn't go there now, would you? Probably not, no. <laughs> no, I mean, that was a, a Smegmakovich lyric. You know, it was still very much a stream of consciousness type of lyric writing, I suppose. Yeah. So how did you 
hook up with George Martin on that on that record? Uh, our manager, Mike Tobin, who had been with us right from the very start in our early days in Bristol, he was part of various sort of agencies. And then he moved on he, uh, to this new uh, agency in Park Street off of Oxford Street, which was part of George's new company, Air London. So we, we had some demos for, you know, what what was going to be our next album. And Mike actually had the temerity to, to, to play into George one day and, and, and he was impressed. He, he thought, yeah, this, this, is, this is something I, I could, you know, do something with. Because at that time, obviously, the Beatles had finished and George was trying his hand at so many very different kinds of, of music, you know, like Jeff Beck and Mahavishnu Orchestra. And he was up for anything, I think, yeah, you know, just trying his hand at all different strands of music. We were absolutely, of course, utterly gobsmacked, you know, when we heard the news that George would be prepared to sort of do an album. And, uh, yeah. How long did it take to make that record? Just 10 days of recording and three days of mixing. But, of course, we'd had, like, uh, a couple of weeks before that, going to George's house in Paddington, running through the songs with him, and he would suggest, you know, different ways to sort of approach, you know, various songs, different arrangement ideas. And, and you know, so we, we'd really sort of honed what we were going to do, I think. Stackridge was a very frustrating band to follow. I, I, I've, mm, I've, <laughs> I'm sure. The first show I ever went to as a, as a punter was uh, your gig at the Rainbow in Finsbury Park, shortly after the album came out, and Mutter had gone. And that was the first sort of disorder orienting thing but yeah. he was there the next gig I saw was at the marquee and you'd gone Crun had gone Mike had gone and it was hairy chested Paul singing spin around the room and Andy was playing the drums so that was completely <laughs> confusing yeah wasn't it yeah. I, th I think you were in the audience for that show oh maybe yeah I think maybe you're right so why did you leave oh Honestly, what a what a regrettable time that was. It was really Andy and Mutter. They they, they thought that uh, Crun and myself were getting a bit too carried away with our silliness. Andy and Mutter were getting much more into the idea of being, you know, in inverted commas, serious musicians. And to the opportunity now to start afresh and find people who are going to be serious about doing music. That it was that kind of attitude. So in fact. I've got to tell you, uh, Mutter and Andy kind of got rid of, of me and Crumb. They, they didn't. They didn't tell us themselves that they, they got our manager at the time. It was a new manager, rather like the Pete Best kind of scenario <laughs> with Brian Epstein. He called us into the office. We, we'd like you. Well, we want to carry on without you and Crumb, or some such sort of euphemistic way of putting it. And it was a very, very bad and regrettable thing to have done. It's a bit of a, a bit of a problem with Andy. He's had this thing of deep down never being quite satisfied with how things are, and thing, and he thinks things have got to be shaken up completely, and we've got to change and sort of move on. And uh, it doesn't matter what kind of casualties are there in the wake of, of this sort of change. Uh, it was, yeah, it's, it's not a good tendency, and. Um, it was a really bad decision. It was a very dark, very dark time for me, especially when I looked back and thinking, well, you know, I, I contributed so much to the sort of early stuff. You know, I'd written Humiliation, which, which I, I still think is one of the best things I've ever done and stands up as being a, a really good song uh, under any circumstances. And I thought, how, how could they possibly not want me to be involved? I, I just couldn't believe it. Mm. I think within a few months, I'd contacted George Martin and said, George, would you be interested in, in doing an album with me? You know, could, can I do some kind of solo album and you produce it? 
And I remember him saying, James, I'd love to, but I'm just a bit too busy right now to consider that sort of thing. And I I don't know, to be honest, whether he would have wanted to do that, because I could be a bit of a prima donna, I think, at the time. You know, I'm a bit bit precious about stuff um, sometimes. But basically, I ended up drifting around, you know, not really knowing what to do or where to go from there, I suppose, for, for a couple of years. So that must have lasted. I mean, it was about four years before the Corgis began. Was it four years? Yeah, maybe, yeah. That's quite a long time. Yeah, I suppose um, it would would be three years then because uh, a year before the Corgis actually hit the scene, I I was making demos again, seriously, I suppose. So the Corgis were sort of forged in a in a new wave style, I suppose you could say, weren't they? The, mm. were, were you inspired by things that were coming up around then, like uh, Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and Squeeze and that kind of stuff? Well, my big thing was Blondie. Oh, really? I adored, I adored Blondie. But obviously, I loved Debbie Harry anyway. I thought she was the most you know, sexy thing I could think of at the time. <laughs> and and uh, But I, I love that, that kind of no-nonsense, rocky kind of sound, but with great pop hooks. I loved that combination. And also a new kind of lyric writing. It was a new, exciting street sort of lyric writing, which uh, which I really liked as well. Yeah. So how and why did you hook up with Andy again? Yeah, because by that time I was living in Bath and I started to come up with these song ideas. And I, one day I just happened to see this advert on the doorway of, of this uh, house in, in, in the centre of Bath saying... Um, David Lord Sound Recording Services. And so I, I met this person, David Lord, the most lovely person you could ever meet, and the most fantastic musician. So I, I made a couple of demos with, with David, and by that time, I'd started to phone Andy occasionally, or he would phone me occasionally. I, he must have obviously been quite impressed by the kind of demos I've been doing with David Lord, and he came down to Bath, and uh, he said, by the way, James, you know, I, I've met these couple of guys who used to belong to EMI Publishing Company, Nick and Tim Heath, and, and they're going to form their own sort of company and they're interested in you know what I'm doing. Perhaps we could do some demos and they could pay for us to do it. And that's how the whole thing got going. Okay, so that would sort of explain why the first Corgi's album is one side Andy and one side James, isn't it? Mm, I guess so, yeah. Was that intentional or was that just the way it fell together? Uh, I think no, I think that was how it was for that first album. He'd had these sort of definite ideas of his own that he wanted to put down, you know, and I just had my own still slightly weird songs that I was coming up with, definitely weird lyrics anyway, like Mount Everest Sings the Blues. And, and it just seemed to sort of be neat, a neat way of sort of presenting the, the stuff that we were doing, you know. Uh, Young and Russian was a good start, but it was Andy's song, If I Had You, that was the sort of first big hit of your career, wasn't it? Mm. <laughs> well, mm. Was that a relief? Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I think we owe it to Tony Blackburn because he played that song to death. He absolutely loved it. Really, he was pretty much solely responsible for it getting into, you know, into the sort of uh, the bloodstream of, of uh, British pop at the time. Um, wonderful. The Corgis actually had quite a few hits, didn't you? So uh, it, it's it's weird that you're not remembered as a band so much. Did you feel that, was there something about the fact that you were slightly older that you didn't really put yourselves out there in the same way that a young band might have done? Yeah, again, a really bad decision was uh, to blame there because we were influenced by bands like The Buggles, which had this manifesto of uh, we are a studio band, you know, we don't sort of bother about going out performing on stage, Mm. we just just make records. Because we'd spent so long on the road 
in Stackridge, constantly up and down the country, you know, week in, week out. We thought this is a fantastic idea. Did you just sort of stay in the studio all the time? That's wonderful. So we were really taken with that. But of course, it was a huge mistake. As soon as if I had you had uh, got into the uh, top 20, we should have been out there on the road promoting it like hell. But we didn't. We stayed completely anonymous studio entity and no one knew the hell we were or what we were about and that was very much to our detriment. So on the Corgi's second album, Dumbwaiters, was Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime. It was released as a single on 12th of May 1980, it reached number 5 on the UK singles charts and number 18 in America on the Billboard Hot 100. It was number 1 in France and Spain, uh, hit in Ireland, Switzerland, Belgium, the Netherlands, Australia and New Zealand and it has charted several times since in versions by uh, the Dream Academy, Baby D, Yaz, Beck and the Cantamus Girls Choir. And it's been covered dozens of times by artists from many genres. How did you write it? I, I'd started in a very fumbling uh, and totally sort of uh, untechnical way to play piano by that time because uh, unlike Andy, I, I had no kind of keyboard connection at all. Uh, but I, I got a piano, you know, and I thought I've got to learn to play something on it. It's an invaluable way of writing songs. And so I was constantly messing around the piano rather than guitar. And one Sunday morning I got up and that was the first few chords that I came up with and I immediately improvised the tune. It was all done in, in about 15 minutes. But I, I should say that I'd also, like for a, a couple of weeks before the song popped out, been consciously uh, gripped by this thing of, wouldn't it be great to come up with a rock ballad which you know could be played on American radios as well as in England? Because... Uh, by that time, I was totally in love with Fleetwood Mac. I mean, the Rumours band of Fleetwood Mac. And uh, I, I just thought it was just fantastic how they'd managed to sort of come from England, go over to the States and become hugely successful and coming up with like amazing pop hooks. So I thought I'd be lovely to be able to do something like that rather than just sort of think locally, to think globally. You know, and America was still absolutely was, was where it was at as far as I was concerned. So that was very much in my, in my head. And so when you listen to the tune, Very Boys Got to Learn, you, I mean, I, I, for me, it's totally obvious that I was consciously trying to do Americanisms, you know, change your heart, look around you, and need your loving. I mean, to me, it was all kind of American R&B style singing, you know, albeit in my, my slightly more anemic voice, you know. <laughs> Did you know it was great straight away? No, I thought it was good. I, th I thought this is definitely good, you know. But I, I still imagined it in a kind of the, the same way that Paul McCartney imagined Long and Winding Road, just like voice, piano, bass and drums. And that's how I imagined it would be. It was definitely David Lord who came up with the idea of, you know, that we can do something really nice because the chords if I may say so, are so nice, you know, and so musical, it, you know, it, it lent itself to doing some lovely string-based arrangement. So I'm pretty sure it was David who got the idea of making it a lush production, and um, and he was absolutely right. There's some nice little things, like there's the, the E-flat in the bass at the end of the verse, isn't there, that just sort of sours it slightly. There's There's a couple of little things that just 
make you shiver when you, <laughs> you listen back to them. <laughs> were, were those conscious things? Were you, were you, or is that just sort of chance? It, it all followed from the piano chords. So whatever the bass was playing was just sort of an afterthought, really. It was the piano chords that completely shaped the, the, the song, you know, the approach of the song, how it was delivered. And I was well pleased that I'd managed to come up with those chords on the piano. I, I knew what the chords were in my head anyway. I mean, I could have done them on the guitar, but I, I was delighted that I was just sort of fumbling around the piano and I managed to come up with these lovely sort of jazzy, bluesy chords, especially on the section that goes, I need your loving. Yeah. Well, that sort of area, you know. And, and that's, that's a, a bit... suspended, that's a sus four, isn't it? Down, yeah. Down, yes. And also like the bit that goes, everyone's going to learn sometime. Dun, ding, ding. Those kind of chords there. Yeah. I was, you know, well pleased that I managed to come up with that sequence. That yeah. ending reminds me of Bridge Over Trouble Water for some reason. It's almost like, oh, right. I will lay me down. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, it's got yeah. that sort of feel to oh, it. Oh, well, yeah, that could well have been an unconscious influence because I used to adore songs like that. It's also one of the best recordings of your voice ever. Was that part of the of the, the remit? I want to be sort of centre front here. It's got to be a, a, a very in-your-face vocal. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, if you hear the piano demo, uh, which I, I actually included on one of my... I did a solo album called Jim's Easy Listening Album. And if you listen to that, you can you can hear that I was still not treating it entirely seriously. You know, I, I was doing a much more, change your heart, look around, you more, you know aware of its kind of Americanisms. But again, I'm pretty sure it would have been David, especially David Lord, who said, let's treat it a bit more seriously. Let's try and make a proper sort of serious production effort of this song. You know, don't lay on any thick Americanisms or anything. Just sing it best as you can. Um, and yeah, and that, that paid off. Now, I gather it was slightly more complex than the final version of the song originally, wasn't it? In what sense? There was more to it. Uh, yeah, for example, there was a second verse of lyrics that we didn't use because what happened was we sent the original demo up to Nick and Tim Heath, which they really loved. Uh, and, and Nick and Tim Heath were convinced that, that that everyone's got to learn what was definitely a hit. And we should definitely work on that one more than any of the other songs. But I only had the one verse of lyrics on that demo. Uh, I thought to myself, well, we, we can't get away with just one verse of lyrics. So then I, I did think of the second verse and we recorded a proper version with the new second verse. But Nick and Tim, he didn't think it sounded very natural. It was, uh, they thought it sounded a bit artificial compared to the first verse. So they, they said, no, just, just use that one verse. It actually people. has a slightly different scansion, doesn't it, the second it verse? It does, yeah. I'm not mad about them uh, as, a, as a set of words, but um, I, I was desperate, as I say, to have something else in the song, I thought it was embarrassing to just have the one verse of lyrics. Later on, I, I sort of convinced myself that it was like a, a haiku, um, and I thought that was probably quite a, an interesting, you know, thing. <laughs> well, it becomes like a sort of mantra, doesn't it? Or it, it's, yeah, it's some, yeah, it does, doesn't it? The yes. repetition is part yes. of the, the the tension. I think you're right. Do you think it, of it as a sad song or an uplifting song? I don't think of it as uplifting. No, I, I, I've always thought of it as philosophical because that was definitely the sort of uh, inspiration behind the lyrics. I mean, it, I didn't write it as a romantic song. I, I think it's great that many people look upon it as like a romantic song. And, and that's absolutely fine. I, I don't see why songs can't have layers of different meanings, even if you didn't intend them yourself. 
And But as I say, for me, it was definitely a philosophical lyric. I suppose there is a more sad overall feel to it because I was sort of lamenting the fact we don't see each other in a loving sort of way. And, and that's what we really need to do if, if we're going to create a better world. I mean, that, that was the whole sort of thing behind the lyric. Were you reading any particular kind of teachings or anything at the time? Was oh, it? yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was totally into Buddhism at the time. So I, I, I was into this and any kind of you know, way of looking at life that was come, that had come from the sort of Buddhist way of looking at things. Part and parcel of that is that, you know, the way that we look at our, our relationships and ourselves is very much conditioned by our own particular cultures that we come from and that, you know, we need to look at them completely afresh. You know, is, is this is this the, the right way to conduct our relationships, to be totally self-centred and so on, you know? Is, you know aren't we connected to every, everyone else and every and everything else in the world? Kind of, All those kind of attitudes that I was espousing. Um, one thing I think that's that's clever about it is that it's got this aspect to it that it could have been it could have sounded preachy if you'd done done it a different mm. way couldn't it it could have I suppose so, yeah. it could have sounded a bit finger wagging but it's yeah, I so, yeah. it, it doesn't at all it's just it's oh, like good. it's got a wistfulness about the delivery yeah. isn't it yeah i'm glad i'm glad it turned out that way because i i, I wouldn't have wanted to do a preachy thing i mean that was one of the things that i always found regrettable about george harrison's solo stuff that it did he got a bit carried away on the sort of preachiness of his Sounded a bit too earnest sometimes. Yeah, didn't it? yeah, I, I didn't like that. Um, it sort of transcends genre, doesn't it? People, I think, have, I think it does. People yeah. have done it in all kinds of styles, and it yeah. seems to work. I'm, I'm constantly amazed at all the different approaches that people have come up with for that song. It's just incredible. But but there again, for me, the song has a life of its own. I, I feel quite detached from it actually. Uh, you know, so when I hear a different version, uh, it, oh, it's that song that I'm I'm very strongly connected with, but yet at the same time, it it's, it has its own life. It's out there doing its own thing. You know, it's it's quite strange. It was a huge global hit, wasn't it? Really, um, and and you said you wanted it to happen in America, and it did. It got into the and top twenty. Did. Yeah. So that must have been extraordinary for you. Oh, fantastic! I mean. It was like, you know, being in La La Land, you know, dreamland. I, I couldn't believe what was happening, really. It, just, it really was the stuff of dreams that you didn't think would ever become a reality. And, and suddenly it was. And again, you weren't promoting it, were you, at that point? No. <laughs> we still had the same sort of stupid attitudes to, uh, to what we were doing. Uh, yeah, our own worst enemies, uh, like so often in, in, uh, in our careers our being Andy Davis and myself our own worst enemies really yeah we should have been out there of course performing live constantly by that time definitely I mean it was number one in France and Spain it was hitting Ireland and the Netherlands and Australia so imagine how much bigger it might have been if you'd been out there (laughs) promoting it absolutely idiotic sort of thing to have done to have left at that time but there we are you know we, we were Younger and foolish. Younger and foolish, what can I say? It seems to me, uh, as a songwriter, that the the Holy Grail is the perfect song that's beautifully simple, beautifully realised, you know, succinct and precise in its intent, but also ambiguous enough for listeners to superimpose their own emotions onto it and the, the, mm. this song seems to me exactly that it's it's a single idea kind of just stated <laughs> and then yeah. and then listeners do what you want with this do That's you right. do yeah. you ever um do you ever read any of the comments on youtube about it 
I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, I have to say. I mean, and that's an interesting development, isn't it, in the last uh, mm. decade of being isn't able it? to see people commenting on, on, on your work. Um, and I've got to say, there's some of the most extraordinary things I've ever read at the bottom of a video on uh, under versions of this song. Uh, <laughs> I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read a few of them. No, please um, do. Deborah Jenkins, 10 months ago, the song you sing when your heart is broken for the first time. Uh, Ray Barnes, 11 months ago, still brings a lump to my throat even after 40 years. Oh. Uh, this one's good. Thomas Ratcliffe, one year ago. Uh, this song was playing the night I ran from the police and crashed into a ditch at a roadblock. I was, cuffed, <laughs> I was cuffed in the back seat of the police car and this was on the radio. How right it was. I outgrew the stupidity that night. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Someone posted this four days ago. Uh, this song was so special to me when it came out in 1980. I listened to it between John Lennon songs on the radio that terrible night he was murdered. I ended up staying up all night glued to my sound system recording news reports about his death and listening to mm. this song. I also got married that year, so when I hear this song it brings back so many memories, sad and good ones. Wow, fantastic. It's amazing that, isn't it, how a song will just imprint itself on someone's yeah. life. yeah. What what are those songs for you? Do you have some things like that that, that remind you of a time in your life or Ooh, vividly? Um, not in such a poignant way, I don't think. No, I mean there there is there's like a, a whole clutch of songs that I consider to be absolutely fantastic, wonderful songs, you know. And uh, I always you know start to feel slightly tearful when I hear them because they're, they're such brilliant songs. What what what, and, what are they? Which or, Everything like from, I don't know, Bridge Old Trouble Water, I suppose, you know, imagine um, every time we say goodbye, like from the sort of Irving Berlin era, yeah, stuff like that. You know, yeah, I don't have anything quite with that degree of poignancy, I suppose. There's a couple more comments. Martin Francis a year ago, totally sublime, especially the outro from 3 Minutes 14, which ignorant radio DJs always talk over to their eternal shame. <laughs> that is fantastic, that string sound uh, at the end of yeah. uh, what What's actually playing that? Can you remember? Okay, so, um, well, just just the sort of rather primitive string synthesizers that we had at, at that time, 1979, 1980. Yeah. I think there was a, a, a notorious uh, synthesizer called the Solina string machine. Yes. Uh, and practically anything it could do was sort of mimic the sound of like a string section, albeit in a very kind of electronic-y, lo-fi sort of way. Mm. But, but if you spent several hours in the studio tweaking the sound, you, you could get it to fit in your track somehow. Yeah. And so, as I say, David Lord was just so good at technical stuff, as well as being a great musician, that he managed to somehow, you know, make the Selena string sound come out really nicely on record you know um we, we may have used it in combination with whatever primitive polyphonic synths around at the time and built up a wall of kind of string-like sounds you know but uh i i played the song to a, a younger friend of mine and he listened to it and went wow this sounds like tame and parlor who uh are, yeah you know, yeah currently I know tame Parler, yeah. yeah and i said well it was a big hit in australia um kevin may have may have known it oh, maybe, <laughs> may have yeah. grown up with it yeah but it sounds incredibly modern playing it uh, today i think there's something about even the the cheesy string synth i know sound is, is is really quite uh, respected yeah. now <laughs> yeah amazing isn't it i mean i can sort of feel somewhat detached from the whole thing, you know, because the sort of orchestration of that original recording was, was not my sort of thing anyway, you know. I was part of what was going on, but mm. I didn't instigate it, you know. Um, it wasn't my vision for the song. 
So yeah, so it's, I'm amazed, like everyone else. Really. I have it's to say, like I have to say that I do think it's one of those songs, and you mentioned um, "Bridge Over Troubled Water," and imagine mm. that I find it hard to listen to without getting a lump in the throat. It's mm. it's just got that ability to the, the the whole sound of it and the way that it rises at the end and everything. It's yeah, it, it, yeah. it's it's very moving. Uh, here's a couple mm. more comments that underline that. Um, this is somebody called Peter Mendoza seven months ago. I've had best friends since, but I can still say my friend Richie was the best friend I ever had. He was a mellow guy, but loved to party. Never did drugs, but drank like the rest of us. He hit the lotto when he was 19. After that, all his friends became fake, except for maybe a handful. He was always paying their way, but it was never enough. I warned him time and time again. He said he understood, but his heart was too soft. Then one day, he was found in bed, passed away from sleeping bills. He left a suicide note and said he was sorry. It was 1980. He was 20. In his room on his bed, he had this song on the record player. The lyrics haunt me. It was as if they were written for him, and his mm. voice was like this as well. His true friends were devastated for years to come and couldn't shake it off. If only I had been there. I kept the record, but then one day I lost it. I haven't heard this song in decades until just now. Wow, gosh. How moving. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, that yeah. something can connect someone to to a friend or and to to a, a bad memory that they find uplifting to relive in some in some yes, way it's that complex yeah. blend of emotions isn't it that only mm. music can put across i think yes definitely yeah so these are slightly more upbeat things that people have have said online which which yeah. and, um this song takes me back to 1980 i was struggling to find myself i found growing up extraordinarily tough I didn't know what it was that everybody had to learn sometime, but James Warren's <laughs> beautiful voice comforted me. Hearing mm. the song again some 39 years later, I still found comfort in it. Oh, great. You can't ask for much more than that, really. No, from, from you song, can't. Can you? It's amazing. And, and the last one. The silkiest, most sensuous and most hypnotic song ever heard. There's something about it that makes me think about lovemaking. In the good sense. I mean, about being deeply in love. It's a real gem, mm. beautifully recorded. Oh, lovely. Uh, lovely. I, I mean, I think as a as a as a writer, that must be what you're hoping for every time you sit down, isn't it? To have that kind of connection with your with your audience. Oh yeah, I mean that that that, that is the, the high point, isn't it? It's, it's the acme of uh, you know of what you as you say what you aim for when you're writing songs or trying to write songs. Yeah. Has it cast a long shadow over your work in some respects for that reason? Maybe yes, yes. I mean. I'm, I, I suppose I'm a curious chap, really, in that I'm not sort of, um, how shall I put it, like a, a kind of, in inverted commas, desperate songwriter. I don't have to write songs. You know, it's, it's not sort of, it's not such a part of my DNA that I can't see myself being alive without creating songs. I, I'm not that way inclined at all, really. I mean, uh, songwriting is, is like something I, I, I very happily do, you know, when I'm in the mood for it these days. You know, when I was younger, I used to do it manically all the time, you know. But these days, since I've had children and so on, got married, it's not the, the sort of be-all and end-all for me anymore. And I certainly don't need it to sort of feel good about myself. I haven't got to write songs. I, I can quite happily go, go on stage and sort of sing a, a whole evening of Beatles songs and be is, you know, as happy as sort of singing, you know, a whole evening of Corgi songs. Yeah, it, it's been something that you, you feel you've got to try and live up to. I suppose I, I never can quite <laughs> hope to get back up there. I don't know. Did it very quickly 
become the kind of song that enabled you to not have to worry about writing other songs? <laughs> I suppose so. I suppose you could say that, yes. But, I mean, it, I, and for me, it was definitely an Im- impetus to keep on writing stuff. And uh, I thought that this, this is absolutely, you know, what my life should be. I, sh- I, you know, I should be a sort of proper songwriter and uh, what, what else could I possibly want to do? But as I said, as I got older, you know, it's not such an imperative for me, songwriting, you know, I, I can very, very happily do it, especially with other people these days. I much prefer these days to actually collaborate with other people. I find it much more fun mm. to actually do music with other people rather than sort of being in my bedroom with just me and the guitar, you know. So I've got nothing that I'm desperate to say or put across anymore. You know, I think I've, I've sort of said what I wanted to say in songs like Humiliation and Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime and you know, there's not much else I want to say, really. Something about the Beatles is another one. Of Something about the Beatles is another one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those three. Well, it, they've said it all. But it's great, isn't it, to have a hand, at least a handful of songs that you can really feel. There's me. You know, I've I've, I've yes, transmitted myself into a, yeah, into a little handful of of classics. Um. So when you uh, re-recorded it recently for this new version. Mm. Was anything revealed to you about doing it in this different way? Did it become a different song, or does it feel different singing it at your age? I don't know if it feels different. I I, I feel that I can sing much better these days because I I was sort of cursed for most of my uh, musical life with a a, a ridiculous kind of self-consciousness about singing. I mean... when I when I'm by myself, I've always been able to sing effortlessly and without any kind of self consciousness. But for, for most of my professional music life in the studio, I would tend to get pretty kind of embarrassed and uptight when it came to actually doing a vocal, ridiculously. Uh, and I, I'm glad to say I've lost that in recent years. And I, I can, you know, I, I, I find I, I can sing much better, um, much more confidently. And uh, I, I can actually listen back to my voice now quite happily. Of all the covers over the years, is there one that you particularly like, you're particularly fond of? Ooh, um, I don't know if there's one particular version. Um, I mean, I think the Zucchero versions are, are, are good, aren't they? They're very emotive sort of vocal delivery and so on. Um, I mean, the, the, the recent Beck version for that film, Eternal Sunshine, uh, was a very interesting version, very dark way of doing it, which I found quite surprising, but I grew to quite like. It's quite claustrophobic, that one, isn't it? It's quite very... claustrophobic, yeah, but it fits so wonderfully well in the film, I think. Yeah. It's great work. Uh, I, I don't think any of the dance versions, even though I admire much of what, what people have done in that way of doing things, uh, I don't think any of them sort of really kind of lastingly grab me you know it's uh there's probably probably one or two versions that i'm not remembering at this moment in time that i've probably got on my computer um i don't know if you're aware but um cristiano ronaldo the footballer has yes <laughs> yes has put up a video or someone's put up a video of him singing of it in the car i am aware of that that's amazing isn't it that's incredible amazing. isn't it you've recently retired stackridge for the last time i assume mm-hmm. what, what was the decision there you, you you've been doing it for many years again are you retiring generally or or what was the thinking behind that well, uh, I think I, pro- I may have carried on a bit longer with the Stackridge thing. It, it, it 
it's got to seem, you know, that I don't know what else we could have done with it, really. I think we we weren't sort of getting waves of new fans very much the sort of faithful turning up at gigs. You were preaching to the choir a bit, were you? Yes, really. <laughs> but also there was a more serious thing of Andy and I don't really sort of get on as people, you know. I, I'm not his kind of guy and he's not my kind of guy. You know, we, we wouldn't sort of want to hang out with each other. And I think we just got to like the end of, end of you know, our sort of tether again, really. I mean, it, it's happened several times in our relationship down the years, but you know, being on being on the road again quite quite a lot, quite intensively with this new, you know, Stackridge sort of thing. You know, we, we've got to discover once again that we don't really enjoy each other's company and would really not, you know, prefer to spend it with other people, you know, yeah. sort of even do music with other people. And so we just got to the end of, of the line, really. Yeah. What are you, what do you want to do sort of professionally from here on? What's your, what are your plans? Okay, so I don't know if you're aware, in 2017, I think it was, I, I, I did a solo album called Innocent Bystander. Uh, and so I've been out sort of doing uh, shows with that. And, and we, we've sort of resurrected the Corgis, we being myself, a chap called John Baker that was part of the Corgis from the late 1980s onwards, and an old friend of mine called Al Steele, who's had a studio in Philly called Shabby Road for the past 20 <laughs> odd years. Al is a fantastic musician, a lovely chap. And so we've gone out on the road, Al Steele, John Baker, myself, and about five other people. And we, we do a kind of, we do a Corby show, you know, doing Ask the Best of the Corby's, as well as, a, as well as a few Stackridge songs and a few of the songs from my solo albums. And uh, it's been great fun. It's, it's, it's been an uphill struggle, I must say getting promoters into the idea of booking us. But uh, we're going to carry on with that for the time being, see see where it goes. And maybe this time you can make something of the brand name, you know, because there are so, there are so many people that love this song. You've just got to remind them who you were and maybe... Yeah, I hope so. New, I mean, you've just done this album. But mm. Did it feel like you had a, a good wellspring of inspiration at that point? It, I had the idea at that time of, I'm not going to be selling massive quantities of albums as James Warren. So really, I, I made a CD, which was something you take around to sort of publishers saying, look, here's my new songs, you know, pass it on to so-and-so and so-and-so and see if they'd be interested in covering it. Uh, sadly, it didn't really come off in, that, uh, in terms of, you know, people haven't been very interested in what I've done. But uh, the songs on, on that album, Innocent Bystander, I, I think there's lots of good pop song ideas that some people could, you know, maybe use and... Uh, and find a home for them, you know, but, but I'm always up for it, you know. So, for example, Al, this chap I mentioned, Al Steele, you know, he's a great musician and a great writer himself. And so we're, we're constantly thinking, you know, you know, as soon as lockdown finishes, we, we, we should definitely seriously get back and sort of do uh, some serious songwriting and, and come up with an album sort of thing, you know. So I'm happy to do that kind of thing, collaborate with, with people I enjoy working with and uh, see what happens. Well, great. Long may you continue to do so, James. And I'm sure there'll be other many other classics from your pen <laughs> <laughs> yet to come. Oh. Um, finally, just do you have a final thought about uh, about the song? It's been good to you, hasn't it? Oh, uh, fantastic. Uh, as I said, like a dream come true, you know, it, it's the sort of stuff that when I first started playing in bands and first sort of playing guitar, I, I would dream about 
not seriously thinking it could ever be something I would experience myself. But the gods really did smile on me for that few minutes of that Sunday morning when I came up with that idea. And uh, it's just been wonderful. It's been a wonderful time ever since. I'd like to thank James Warren for joining us in this episode. For rights reasons, we were unable to play the whole song today, but we've compiled a Spotify playlist featuring various versions of Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime and highlights of James's work with Stackridge and the Corgis and from his solo career. Links are on our Here's One website or search Spotify for Here's One I Made Earlier, James Warren. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss our next conversation with the creator of an iconic musical work. Thank you for listening and hope to see you again. Bye.